Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us with the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, today was the funeral for Ariel Sharon. Obviously, uh, you know, it's been, uh, you know, he, he had that uh, stroke, well, it's eight years ago now, and so he hasn't been a player, but his impact on the state of Israel and the region continues to linger, as you could, was evidenced by the people who were gathered there today. You know, it's amazing reading the obituaries and the appreciations of him and the accounts of his life. I mean, a man who fought in the war in 1948 at the founding of, uh, of the state of Israel, uh, a military hero, really, of the various uh, battles and wars of the 50s and 60s, and as late as the 73 war, he was called back in uh, to take charge, I think, at the Southern Front and, and uh, engineered this spectacular counterattack across the Suez Canal. Um, I mean, it's really an amazing... If he had just been a, a soldier and then eventually a general, he would be a, a kind of a legendary figure in Israeli history, uh, there's an amazing account of this battle of, of Latrun when he was a very young lieutenant leading a platoon and uh, wounded there uh, in 1948. I mean, it's just remarkable. And then the long political career he had as a cabinet minister, um, as a politician, and ultimately as prime minister. Not a lot of people who have that kind of uh, career and leave that kind of legacy and really a larger-than-life figure. I met him a few times. Um, he came by the Weekly Standard, I remember, in the mid-late 90s, he was um, either, I can't remember if they were in opposition or he was in any case, maybe a kind of a minor cabinet minister in the first Netanyahu government, I think housing minister. And, um, you know, he, he seemed like a figure then, though, who would never kind of get back into, onto center stage because of his having been, uh, having left in 82 after the Lebanon War and being an object of so much attack from the left and, and some doubts even from the center and the right. And it is, for me, one of the lessons that hasn't been sufficiently commented on about Sharon is it's such a lesson in how politics can change and how one's career looks like it's over, and then you have this amazing uh, comeback. It reminded me a little of, of Reagan, who, you know, in the late 70s, people thought was kind of finished after his failure to defeat Ford for the Republican nomination and comes back. And then that he would have been, I mean, the uh, people, the, the eulogies of the obituaries have not appreciated enough how uh, how incredibly improbable it would have seemed in 97, 98, 99 that Ariel Sharon would become Prime Minister of Israel in, what was it, 2000, 2001, I guess, and then crush the Intifada in 2002, and then uh, go ahead and remove uh, the settlers from Gaza, for better or worse, but, um, you know, to really, I think, at least taking away the argument that Israel was just interested in occupation and not interested in peace, uh, really kind of an amazing career. The person I keep thinking of is Churchill. Because uh, mm -hmm. Churchill was this man for peace, man for war, and you know, had to balance the two. Except I would argue that uh, Ariel Sharon was more successful than Churchill because Churchill was never able to kind of bridge the peacetime gap. He had to spend, spend peace, you know, on the sidelines, essentially. Uh, but Ariel Sharon was uh, off and on again in the center of things regardless of uh, what was happening with the military. Yeah, the Churchill comparison is a good one. I don't know. Churchill was pretty amazing in, in his own way, but um, and and I hate to say anyone was more successful than Churchill, given what <laughs> Churchill did for the West and, and the key years. But, you, but and then he was a peacetime prime minister afterwards too. I mean, look, Sharon's uh, the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza. I guess whether that ultimately turns out to have been wise or not is a bit up in the air. But I, I think it. I've been generally a defender of it, despite uh, the way it was done was characteristically Sharon, and therefore somewhat uh, um, imperious and not very sensitive to the, uh, you know, to the well-being, perhaps, of the people who were being removed. And this is always a bit of a, a, a aspect of Sharon, very sure of himself and not always uh, unwilling to tread on toes or even a little more than toes. But, 
I mean, he is a Churchillian figure in in the sort of scope of his achievements. And I think in his fundamental view of the world, which combined a real tough-mindedness, a real, you know, hard-headedness about the world we lived in, the enemies he had, in Churchill's case, the enemies Britain had, uh, the need to be ready to fight, the need to be ready to uh, not indulge in, in fantasies and utopian dreams, on the one hand, but then a genuine patriotism, love for his own country, love for his people, uh, that often doesn't go hand in hand with that kind of hard-headedness. You know, most hard-headed people are kind of cold when it comes right. to, you know, uh, loving any any kind of uh, people or land or history. And what's amazing about Sharon, like Churchill, is the combination of the warmth and the hard-headedness, the devotion to a cause bigger than himself, but also the willingness to be tough-minded about what you had to do to uh, to advance that cause, or in Sharon's case, to really protect the Jewish people. When I was uh, doing radio in Washington, D.C., I spent a week broadcasting from Jerusalem, and Ariel Schroem happened to be giving a speech nearby to some, like, you know, American Association of Associated Americans, I mean, some nothing, you know, group. And I slipped in in the back and was able to watch him speak. And what you just commented on is what jumped out at me. I was expecting kind of a political, glad-handy kind of thing, or maybe there were some debates. You know, there's always a debate, so there was something going on in politics. But he talked about the need for uh, Jews around the world to make Aliyah, how much Israel was counting on them to come here and to love this land the way he did. And it was this pure, I mean, it was a combination of kind of patriotism and just pure, just his personal affection just came pouring out. When he was done, I was ready to make Aliyah. And then I remembered I was a Southern Baptist who went to Oral Roberts University. But still, that's the kind of, uh, of a passion that he engendered. He did. But, you know, it's funny that you mentioned your own experience because one of the things he really did um, earlier than almost any other Israeli politician, I think, was realize the importance of, uh, not just politically for Israel, but really uh, in a broader way of engaging the American Christians who were instinctively, are instinctively pro-Israel, very right. fond of both for sort of spiritual and religious reasons, but also for political reasons of Israel, have real attachment to it. Sharon is one of the first to uh, push his fellow Israelis, people in government there, people in other organizations, to make it, to bring over uh, Christian groups and to sort of reach out to them to provide speakers for their uh, for their get-togethers and vice versa, and I think he built a lot of bridges with the American Christian community that uh, a is important in its own right, b is important, of course, politically for the future for the Amer- for American-Israeli relations, and c I think even has a deeper significance because when you think of the history of the world, the fact that you know a huge Christian community in the United States is pro-Israel and 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 pro-Jewish really, uh, pro the Jewish state, pro pro the Jewish people. That's a huge event, you know, in religious history, in the history of Christianity, in the history of Judaism, not just in the history of America and Israel. And Sharon played a part in that as well. Uh, one of the uh, oddest criticisms I've heard of the Sharon legacy is, uh, you know, he built the wall to to fight the Second Intifada and to uh, to and, and it worked. And then the, uh, he was willing to, as you mentioned, to pull back to turn on his political allies in the settlement movement to say we have to give up some of these settlements. But he did it, and so the Gaza went, and the West Bank went, and now people are saying, he tricked us, he let us govern ourselves and show that we, were, <laughs> we weren't ready, that sneaky Sharon, how dare he do this, so he gave you what you wanted, and he's, you know, and, and they're blaming him for it. Yeah, and he, I mean, well, there's some, many people in the U.S. will never be satisfied, obviously, with uh, what any Israeli government does for peace. Right. I, for me, that was a very important moment. I mean, Gaza, if you're an Israeli, I think, and certainly if you knew people who were had settled in Gaza in sort of a good faith, and uh, what happened to them, what Sharon was engineered, is, is problematic. But from an American point of view, 
I think. It, the fact that Israel got out of Gaza unambiguously and also got out of Lebanon only before that, and the fact that you couldn't therefore make a claim that Israel was somehow taking the land of, of, of Gaza or Lebanon, uh, clearly wanted to get out, they wanted peace, and then to look what happened there really showed how unprepared in the case of Gaza, the Palestinians obviously were for allowing for peace between uh, two possible states. In the case of Lebanon, it was Hezbollah that was really the problem. But I think it made it easier for American defenders of Israel, for American friends of Israel, to say, look, it's not that Israel Israel has some crazy desire to occupy lots of land here. Israel is willing to bend over backwards for peace. It's that they don't have a partner for peace right. on the other side. So Sharon really made that clear. Sharon had great personal affection for the Arabs and the Palestinians. He had grown up with them. He often used to talk about this. He, he was much more, in that respect, he wasn't you know, put off by them. He had kind of more cultural sympathy, I think, for a lot of Arab customs and the kind of Arab way of life, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. than a lot of, uh, than maybe some other Israelis. But he was also hard-headed about the fact that they weren't yet, their political leaders at least, and unfortunately, fair, fair amount of the populace, just wasn't yet ready to come to grips with, to come to peace with, the notion of a, a Jewish state and, uh, in the Holy Land. And, and Sharon was hard-headed about that. He said, look, it, maybe it'll take decades, maybe it'll take 100 years, but we just have to be ready to do what it takes. And, and the truth is, it's not as if that doesn't mean continual war. If you look at the last seven, eight years, while, while Sharon's been in this kind of tragic coma, um, you know, but as, as Israeli governments followed on with his basic policy of separation, it's been pretty peaceful between Israel and the Palestinians, truthfully. Palestinian economy's actually done okay in the West Bank. Gaza's a mess, but that's because of Hamas. So you can continue the status quo for quite a long time. It's not perfect. It doesn't fit the dreams of peace processors, of John Kerry, of, of some, a lot of liberal American Jews who want some kind of magic moment when peace breaks out and flowers bloom everywhere in the Middle East, but it's an acceptable status quo. And one thing Sharon taught is that often an acceptable status quo is the best you can do for, for now. Uh, if Sharon at his peak were here leading Israel today and was watching the negotiations between Iran and the United States and a deal that was mentioned today that we, as of our conversation right now, Bill, we have not seen the details because the White House is refusing to release them. What do you think uh, Sharon's position and attitude would be? Well, I think Sharon would have very much have agreed with Netanyahu. They, had, they worked together and they had their arguments, uh, both major, obviously, strong-willed figures. But he very much would have agreed with Netanyahu that he, he valued the U.S. relationship terrifically. He always tried to get along. Certainly when he was prime minister, he got along very well with George W. Bush. Uh, I think he would have had the same problem with Barack Obama that Netanyahu has had, and he always stressed that Israel had to uh, take care of its security uh, by itself if necessary. That's why the state of Israel was set up. Uh, they couldn't depend on others, even if the others were well-meaning. And I think uh, Sharon would have had the attitude that, unfortunately, uh, Obama, the Obama administration, so desperately wants to deal with Iran. They're, they're uh, as we see now, the deal itself was bad enough, and now the implementation agreement is worse than the deal. The, the, the original deal, I remember debating the deal on TV, and people were saying, uh, the people I were defending the deal sure. were saying, well, there's going to be daily inspections, Bill. You know, there's no chance that Iran can cheat. We're really going to have a handle on what's going right. on there. Then I noticed today, first of all, they haven't even released the text of the deal. And secondly, even the briefing that the administration officials are giving talks about, well, there'll be sort of, there'll be inspections, but some of them are not going to be daily, and I'm not sure how intrusive they're going to be. And at Iraq, they may just be monthly. And I think we're going to find out that this is a worse deal than we even thought it was two months ago. 
And I think Ariel Sharon would have been very hard-headed about that and would have said it's not the first time that, unfortunately, uh, the government of a friendly country hasn't really stepped up and, and done what it should have done, and Israel may have to take things into its own hands. One last question. The uh, story of Sharon's life, the anecdote, the, the tale that keeps coming back to you in the last few days, I was fascinated by the story that when he was uh, a young man, I believe it was a Ben-Gurion, said, I need two uh, uh, Arab soldiers for a prisoner swap, and we don't have them. And he just mentioned this to Sharon. And so Sharon heads to the border, f- uh, crosses the Jordan River, acts like he's looking for a, ca- a local farmer looking for a cow. He's unarmed. He disarms the two guys, <laughs> drags them back, and delivers them. So there you go, and just left a note. Didn't even, you know, wasn't like, here, give me an award or pat me on the back. Here's your two guys. Now let's go free some people and, and do some good. And that was just get it done. Yep, that was very much his attitude, and he didn't always follow the rules and regulations 100%. But um, that's another thing that's so different from the current, certainly current American liberal preoccupation with process and procedure and uh, intentions. Sharon was kind of an outcomes kind of guy, you know? Intentions are nice, but results is what matter. What matters, he didn't love the idea of having a wall, a fence across parts of uh, much of Judea and Samaria. He loved that land, and he loved the idea of being able to go anywhere in those in that area. Uh, but he thought the wall was the, the, the fence, whatever we call it, is the right thing to do, is the right thing to do. I think he's been totally vindicated on that. And one forgets how controversial that was and how much he was attacked in the U.S. for building the, the wall. And um, you, hear, you hear a little less of that now, now that terror is pretty much dried up, and it's actually been good for the Palestinians in the West Bank. They've been able to uh, get their economy going when, when they're not constantly sort of uh, being accused correctly of harboring terrorists and then, you know, having to deal with violence there as well. So uh, it's a good instance of where he thought he knew what the right thing to do was. It wasn't something that he liked doing. You know, as I say, he's a guy who would have loved and did love, you read about him, uh, being able to sort of travel over that whole area without having it interrupted by some kind of fence. But uh, he did what he thought was necessary, and I think he's been totally vindicated. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. This has been the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.